A lot of people who visit New York hit up the Bronx or Central Park zoos to get an up-close look at wildlife. After all, the only wild animals the city is most known for are rats and pigeons. But the fact of the matter is, the city is teeming with wildlife. Good morning. I'm George Podarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're exploring wildlife in the concrete jungle, from spotted salamanders to parrots. But before we get to the more under-the-radar creatures that call New York City home, we begin with the aforementioned rat. Jason Munchie-South is an associate professor of biology at Fordham University who's been trapping rats to analyze their DNA. He joins us now in the studio. Jason, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. First of all, I need to say congratulations. Because you you received a $600,000 grant to continue your study of New York City rats, right? Right. Thank you. Yeah, we were very happy and somewhat surprised to uh, receive that grant uh, from the National Science Foundation, which is the federal agency that funds basic research. And they've really started to support research into urban wildlife uh, in recent years. Why study rats in New York City? Rats are really fascinating. I mean, they're such a big part of our lives here in New York City, but we actually don't understand a lot about their basic biology. Uh, Most of what we know about rats has come from studies done decades ago, you know, sort of basic behavioral studies where, uh, you know, people were observing rats and how they move around and how they build their burrows and things like that. None of that research was done in New York City, um, which is actually a in many ways, a very different environment than other cities because it's much more dense and much more built up. So we don't understand a lot about their basic biology. We don't even understand uh, some basic facts like how they move around in an urban environment. Uh, Are they using subway tunnels? Are they preferentially using sewers? Do they track green areas? They they don't like forests, but they seem to like, you know, open lawns with, with hedges that are close to the ground. Are these the places that we've built that they find very appealing, and that's what they use to build their homes and what they ultimately use to move around the city? Those are the kind of questions that we still don't know a lot about. So um, what have you learned so far about rats in New York City? Well, one thing we've learned is that they're actually fairly difficult to trap. We've worked on other urban rodents in the city, uh, native species in the forest that are very easy to trap. Uh, rats are a bit of a different story. They likely have a hardwired predilection for avoiding new items in their environment. So it's what does that mean? So it's something scientists call neophobia. It's the idea that if a new a new object appears in their environment, they will avoid it for some period of time. And they're very curious animals, but they'll you know they'll kind of skirt around it and you know sniff around it, but they won't necessarily want to approach it. That even is true for uh, certain food items, you know, that they're not used to eating. If that suddenly shows up as you know bait in a trap they're going to avoid that for at least a few days. So if you want to capture a rat, don't put anything new out in their environment. Right. So we find when we put out a trap um, with a food that that we think is going to be good, we'll catch uh, a few rats early on, often young individuals. You know, there are some individuals in the population that maybe don't exhibit this behavior. Then the rest of the rats you're likely not going to catch unless you keep uh, attempting to trap them in the same location for a relatively long period of time, you know, something like seven days. So that's kind of an anecdotal observation from trying to trap rats. When you trap a rat, though, what then are you doing with that rat? How are you studying it? So our our main work right now is based around the genetics of the rats, and we use very fine-scale genetic patterns of rats in Manhattan to understand how they're moving around. So when we catch a rat, we take a genetic sample, often just a clip of their tail, sometimes other tissues if 
you know, we're collaborating with someone to look at disease or, or other factors. And we take that tissue back to our lab, we extract the DNA, and then we sequence portions of the genome uh, to understand something about that individual rat. And then by comparing the genetic profiles of rats from all over Manhattan, we can tell who's related to who. Hmm. Uh, generally, over a few generations, how much movement has there been from one place to another? You know, where a rat picks up and moves to another place, breeds with another rat that it's not as closely related to. So you see the spread of genes slowly across Manhattan. So that's how we're doing our studies. We look at those genetic patterns, and then we, we build models of the landscape based on infrastructure, socioeconomics, and other factors that we then try to use to explain the genetic patterns. So it's a combination of genetics and uh, landscape studies looking at how infrastructure has been constructed. So at this stage of the game, you don't know exactly how rats are moving around, right? We don't know yet. Uh, we have some preliminary data that indicates they don't move around very much. And you can look at clusters of rats, you know, from one, say from one building or one park in lower Manhattan and compare them to rats in a train station or another building, you know, maybe 40 blocks away. And they're fairly genetically distinct. Um, they're, they're separate colonies composed of relatives and some non-relatives that have moved in from the surrounding area. But already there seems to be this kind of gradient of genetic difference across Manhattan. So they're not traveling very far. No, a rat, is, a rat is born, you know, develops very quickly into adult and can start reproducing fairly quickly, you know, you know in three weeks or so. Um, but they don't really disperse very far in their lifetime. You know, they'll, have a, they'll construct a burrow, often a colonial situation near other rats, many of them relatives. And then they come out at night and they might travel, you know, a few hundred feet to a preferred food source. They might, there might be a dumpster that always has garbage in it. There might be bags that a restaurant or, you know, an apartment building is left on the sidewalk. That's one of the reasons we have so many rats. We don't have alleys with closed dumpsters. The trash just goes on the sidewalk. And they just come out and maybe walk across the street or come out of the sewer and go straight for those food items. They don't need to go very far. And they tend to follow the same paths over and over. So when you see burrows that are built um, in grassy areas, there will be little paths, little rat paths that they've beat down where there's no grass anymore. So are rats leading mostly incestual relationships? Uh, not exactly. So they, they, they avoid inbreeding. They won't, you know, reproduce with their sisters and brothers or parents or probably even their cousins. But over time, these colonies build up with rats that are somewhat related to each other. That's something we'll understand in very fine detail once we've finished this study, exactly how much uh, relatedness there is in, in a particular area. What's a day in the life of a New York City rat like? That's another excellent question. The genetics doesn't quite give us that level of detail. We're actually working on another project to attach some sensors to rats that'll be kind of like a Fitbit for rats <laughs> to see what they're doing and, and who they're interacting with. During the day, they're not very active. If you see rats out during the day um, just walking around and foraging, that likely means there's a lot of rats in that area, and they have to be active during the day to find food, or nobody's attempting to control them. So during the day, they're going to do a lot of resting in their burrows or, or their subterranean hideouts, depending on what season we're talking about. And then at night, they're coming out and foraging and interacting and re you know reproducing and taking care of their young and, and all the things that animals do. We should point out that you are studying a very specific kind of rat. This is the Norway rat or the brown rat, right? Right. So the rats you see in New York City in the subway above ground in buildings are all uh, brown rats or Norway rats. They're not actually from Norway. That was a, a dig that uh, Corollis Linnaeus, a famous taxonomist, 
uh, got in at Norwegians um, when he was naming this species. And it stuck. Yeah. So they're, they're actually this, – this rat originated somewhere in northwest China or southern Mongolia on the plains there. It's not entirely clear. And then they spread overland through agricultural villages and settlements through China and Southeast Asia and then overland through Central Asia and eventually reaching Europe some, somewhere around the 1500s. They quickly spread through Europe. And then they got out into ports and were spread to the Americas by colonial, you know, mercantile activity. The current thought is that the brown rat arrived in New York City in the 1750s on British ships. Hmm. Maybe as late as the Revolutionary War, but probably a little bit earlier. There was another rat here at the time, the black rat, or, or also called the ship rat. That's the famous rat that spread the plague mm-hmm. in Europe. And it tended to do better on ships, so it spread around much earlier. But when the brown rat arrived, it's a larger, more aggressive species and tended to displace the black rat. How much should we be concerned about rats and their potential to spread disease today? Well, rats definitely carry disease. Uh, There's a group at Columbia University that recently published a paper where they identified several known viruses and bacterial pathogens that rats carry that you'd want to be concerned about. There are also novel pathogens there that you know, so far haven't caused any problems, but could in the future. One thought about rats is that they're more of a quality of life issue. They destroy food, they destroy wiring and chew holes in in walls and things like that and leave their droppings everywhere. But they do pose a risk, particularly in terms of food contamination or water contamination. Uh, So they are a concern. And they, in the past, there were actually quite a few incidents of rats biting people. I think those numbers have gone down. But if, you li- if you're a, a person who lives in a building that's not well-maintained and you don't have the economic resources to maintain it, your landlord's not very good, rats can be a big problem for people in those situations. Typically, are rats more afraid of you than you are of the rats? Rats are definitely afraid of people. I mean, they're a prey item for most things that are larger than them. They don't want to interact with people. They, they live in the spaces where we can't get them very easily, you know, underground, in the walls, in the basement. And they live off whatever we leave for them. So is it your hope that if we better understand their movements, we'll be better able to control the population? Yeah, I'm a, my studies are motivated more by uh, understanding their basic biology and how we've created basically another species. And we've created their behavior, their genetic structure by the way we built our cities. But there are obvious implications for pest control. Uh, it's not my main interest, but... It's obviously a, a huge issue for New York City. And if we can understand, you know, even the size of a colony and how much rats move around from one place to another, you know the scale of where you have to apply pest control. And right now, there's a lot of bad pest control activity that basically involves putting out a few traps and throwing some poison out. And poison has a lot of negative effects. It's a bad way to die, for one thing. Mm-hmm. And it tends to poison other animals that eat a rat, like hawks. You know, we have a number of coyotes moving into the city. They're going to be eating poison rats. So if we could build a more holistic sort of model of how you do pest control in an area of the right size, then I think that that would move pest control a bit forward. How many rats are estimated to be living in New York City? There are so many sort of folk estimates of rats. I'm sure you, you know, you've heard that the, the typical answer is, you know, X number of rats per people, you know, eight rats per person, mm-hmm. 10 rats per person. Those are almost certainly overinflated estimates. There was a statistics grad student who estimated around 2 million, 
but he had to make a lot of assumptions to do that estimate. And I think that estimate is probably wildly off. My guess is that it's just based on being out in the field and trapping rats and seeing the burrows. I think there's probably less than 2 million, but there's still hundreds of thousands would be my, my estimate. Jason, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. Jason Munchie-South is an associate professor of biology at Fordham University. More about him and his research at nycevolution.org. Of course, rats and what some people call rats with wings, referring to pigeons, are common sights here in New York City. But the Big Apple is home to a lot of other wildlife that you could easily miss unless you know where to look. Enter Richard Simon. He's the deputy director of New York City's Urban Park Rangers, a division of the Parks and Recreation Department. I recently caught up with him in Central Park. What part of Central Park are we in right now? This is a very woodsy section of the park. Yeah, right now we're in the north woods of Central Park, so a uh, very northern section. We're about, uh, about 106th Street, uh, smack in the middle of the park. Uh, so we're standing above a little stream that's called the ravine. I hear lots of birds around us right now. Yeah, it sounds like we're hearing some, some robins, which are not uncommon this time of year. Uh, robins are kind of a traditional bird that you see at the beginning of spring. Uh, so we're hearing some of them chirping in the background. There's probably a couple of other songbirds that you might hear. might be a, a Peter, Peter, Peter. There might be a cardinal calling out there too, Yeah. How many different species of bird might you find here in the park? Okay, that's a great question. So uh, throughout the year, you might see well over 200 species of birds in Central Park. And there's a difference between migratory birds and resident birds. So, you know, I had mentioned robins. Robins you'll see at certain times of the year, spring through summer, maybe into early fall. We may see resident birds like red-tailed hawks throughout the year soaring above the park. Uh, You might find pigeons throughout the year, mallard ducks, uh, Canada geese. Uh, While other birds are migratory, they're flying through either heading south for the winter or north um, for the summertime. So some of those birds might include other species of birds of prey like a Harris hawk, for example. More and more we're even seeing bald eagles here in New York City. Uh, So it wouldn't be unusual this time of year to see a bald eagle flying over uh, New York City. So, you know, it depends on the time of year that you come to the park. Early spring is a great time to see a bird called a warbler. There are dozens of varieties of warblers. If you're a diehard birder, you're going to come out and look for those uh, birds at this time of year and see how many you can track. Uh, These are tiny little birds with slight deviations in their color. Uh, So if you're a real great birder, you can notice the difference between a Wilson's warbler and, uh, you know, any number of different varieties that can fly through here. It's not uncommon to see a squirrel in Central Park, but what other mammals might we find here? (laughs) That's a great question. And squirrels, you know, they're probably one of the most popular mammals to find here in the park, certainly with people who are not from the U.S., who are... uh, to them, a squirrel might be a unique animal. Uh, but you, if you pay attention and you're here at the right time of day, you'll see raccoons. There are a lot of raccoons in Central Park. And raccoons can be seen just about any time of day. One of the popular myths out there is that you're only going to see a raccoon out at night. They're a nocturnal animal. And that's true. They're naturally a nocturnal animal. However, because they've adjusted their life cycle to living in New York City... You might find them out during the day looking for food, 
um, emerging from their uh, long winter slumber. They don't hibernate, uh, but they do go into a type of hibernation stage. Uh, so when they come out, they'll look a little groggy. People will think that they're rabid, but they're not. Generally, they're, they're very uh, healthy animals who are just looking for food. Lesser seen animals here include white-footed mice. Those that pay attention can see little white-footed mice. They certainly make a good meal for some of the birds of prey, including owls that you'll find here in the park. And I assume they have white feet. They have white feet, yes. <laughs> uh, obviously, there are Norway rats, which live throughout the city. You might see an occasional possum here in the park. Uh, and obviously, we've had a, a number of coyotes that have come through. To our knowledge, there are no resident coyotes in um, Central Park, nor are there any in Manhattan. Some of the uh, coyotes that we're seeing in the city are transient coyotes, coyotes that are probably coming down from the Bronx. As their pack begins to expand, they're looking for new terrain to, to, to live through. I've seen reptiles in this park, namely turtles. There are lots of turtles in Central Park, aren't there? Yeah. Uh, native turtles, including uh, great big snapping turtles, um, probably one of the more dangerous animals that you might encounter in the park should you come across one. These look like large prehistoric animals when they come out. Uh, the, in, in late spring, we might, might see some of these turtles coming out of places like Turtle Pond, uh, trying to cross the West Drive to lay their eggs. This is sort of an annual migration that we'll see. Uh, you might see painted turtles in this park as well. But one of the animals you're going to see uh, more than anything are the red-eared sliders. Uh, red-eared sliders are a non-native turtle. They're from the south of the U.S. They're the turtle that you find in a lot of pets, pet shops. These turtles live to be very, very old, and they're very cute when they're young, but when you're maintaining them for a long time, they're a messy pet, they're a difficult pet, and so a lot of people think, well, I'll just return it to nature. Um, unfortunately, that's had a lot of ecological impacts because it's harder and harder to find native turtles in this park uh, because so many of the red-eared sliders have crowded them out. So people discarded their pets in the park and then they just flourished here? Yeah, this is actually a very common tale of uh, native versus non-native species. Normally what happens is a native species may get crowded out. Uh, the non-native species might be more aggressive. They might be tougher and more capable of seeking out a food source, thus depleting the food source for the native turtles. Uh, they may be more uh, prolific in reproducing uh, and can produce more numbers than the native turtles. Uh, we see this even in, in birds. You know, there's a very uh, famous story about the uh, starling, the European starling. I'm sure as we walk around, we'll see a European starling. Uh, European starlings, by their name, they're not native to this country. Matter of fact, they were introduced in the 1890s by a man named von Schieflin. And von Schieflin was a member of an acclamation society. So back in the 1800s, there were these people who believed uh, the United States should benefit from all of the animals that we hear about in Europe. And he wanted to introduce every bird that you ever heard of in a Shakespeare play. So apparently starlings are mentioned in one line of one Shakespeare play, uh, and he decided to try and release these animals. I think he released about a dozen in the early 1890s. They didn't really take off. Tried again a little while later, a few more birds, and then finally another dozen a couple of years later. And from those birds, we have millions of starlings across the United States. They're a cavity-dwelling bird, so they like to live in little holes that you'll find in trees. They crowd out native birds, such as the eastern bluebird, Famous because it's New York State's bird, very difficult to ever find an eastern bluebird here in New York City because starlings have crowded them out, competed for their food source. I hear a, a red-tailed hawk circling over. You can hear sort of a, 
<laughs> and I just saw a cardinal right over your shoulder right, just so flew I, away. I was accurate on that one. Great. <laughs> so, you know, we, we are constantly witnessing this balance between native animals and non-native ba- animals. Um, and, uh, you know, the competition for resources. Uh, so it's very difficult sometimes to tell, you know, what, are, what, what is native, what is non-native? What do we consider a native animal? Generally, a lot of people consider any animal that was here prior to European colonization to be a, a, a native animal. Uh, but this goes to even earthworms. European settlers even brought earthworms over here. There are non-native earthworms in Central Park. So you know, you've really got to uh, do your homework and think about the species to figure out which are native and which are not. Okay, George, that's a, that's a blue jay mimicking a red-tailed hawk call. So blue jays are very intelligent animals. They're probably doing that uh, to scare off another predator. Uh, it could be that they're seeing something walking around here that's upsetting them. Us. So making a pre- <laughs> it, you're, you're more than likely right, because he is literally standing uh, uh, on a, a branch right above our heads right now. And he's wonderfully mimicking uh, almost perfectly the sound of a red-tailed hawk. That's pretty incredible. Nature <laughs> is an amazing, amazing thing. Very incredible. How different is the wildlife in the parks in the outer boroughs compared to Central Park? Uh, that's a great question. Not significantly different. You know, sometimes when I think about uh, the five boroughs, an, an animal will come to mind. Um, for instance, when I think about the Bronx, we have, uh, we have a lot of coyote in the Bronx. We have a lot of deer in the Bronx. When I think of Staten Island, we have a lot of white-tailed deer. They've become an issue, really, uh, that needs to be addressed. Um, in Queens, we have an endangered species called the piping plover. Um, the Parks Department works very hard with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Department of Environmental Conservation to protect this endangered bird that you can see on the beaches of uh, Rockaway. Uh, when I think of Brooklyn, we, we, we certainly have a lot of raccoons. We have rabbits. When I think of Manhattan, you have just about everything that will wander through here at one point or another. One of the big differences is how these animals are noticed. Because there are so many people that use a park like Central Park over the course of the year, people will inevitably stum- stumble upon wildlife, particularly young wildlife. And they'll often think, oh, it's, it's been abandoned, it's in danger, it needs help, it needs rescue. Often it just needs to be left alone. But we certainly get a lot more calls about wildlife in Manhattan simply because of the number of people who are, who are viewing it and wondering if it should be here or not. What would you say is the most unusual animal in all of New York City that's made a home here? <laughs> oh, that's made a home here. So, you know, one of the things that I think people really don't realize we have is you can see seals. Uh, you can see seals from Orchard Beach in the wintertime. We've seen them off the coast of Coney Island. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, we had one that made their, his way up the Hudson River. Uh, he was spotted at Hudson River Park. He made his way all the way up to Inwood Hill Park. Uh, there are three predominant types of seals that you can see in this area, harp seals, hooded seals, and harbor seals. When you spot them, sometimes you've got to really look twice because they, they, they pull themselves out of the water and they'll rest on a rock uh, to sun themselves. And they'll stay there very quietly, so you've got to be patient to notice that rock moving, to notice that it's a seal. Uh, but I think that that surprises quite a few people. There is one animal that I've never seen in New York City, but I've read that it does live here in New York City. That's the spotted salamander. Yeah, I, and I have not seen a spotted salamander myself. Um, spotted salamanders can only be seen at certain times of the year. They will come out. Um, they generally will reemerge uh, during the warmer time of the year at certain vernal pools, so a pool that's only seasonal, a pool of water. 
uh, and they will look for a mate. They have a very intricate uh, mating ritual. Those that have witnessed it say that it's very beautiful. Spotted salamanders can be found in places like northern Manhattan, in the Bronx, but they do require a lot of patience to, to see one. And, you know, we, it's an animal we don't encourage people to go looking for because they are very sensitive, as are most amphibians, uh, very sensitive to change in the environment or to uh, people touching them. Richard, thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. It's wonderful. That was Richard Simon. He's the deputy director of New York City's Urban Park Rangers, a division of the Parks and Recreation Department. Finally today, we check in with a guy who knows a lot about another non-native species in New York City. His name is Steve Baldwin, and he joins us on the phone this morning. Steve, you lead people on wild parrot safaris in all places Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. What's that all about? Well, the parrots apparently have made their preferred borough Brooklyn. Uh, they've tried to, to nest in other uh, boroughs, uh, and they've been successful in Queens, but the Brooklyn parrots were here first, and uh, I'm in Brooklyn, too, so it's easy for me to do this. What kind of parrots are they? They are known by a number of names. Uh, the first name is the monk parakeet. The second name is the Quaker parrot. It's the same bird, and that bird comes from Argentina. So how did a parrot from Argentina make its way to New York City? Well, they didn't fly up here on their own. Uh, There's a lot of mystery associated with how they arrived here, but as best I've been able to determine, a crate came through Kennedy Airport in the late 1960s, and something happened to that crate. It was either opened intentionally, possibly by the same people who were involved in the uh, famous Lufthansa heist, or there was an accident, and a window was left open or a crate was dropped. After uh, 68, 69, we didn't hear much until 71, and that's when the first reports of these parrots in this part of the world started appearing. What do these parrots look like exactly? Well, they're smaller than a typical New York-style pigeon. Um, They're larger than a sparrow. They're classed as medium-sized parrots, so they're, they're not really... Tremendously big, but um, you know you get a bunch of them together, and they make they make quite a raucous caucus. Now we typically see parrots in warm weather areas. How is it that they are able to survive New York's harsh winters? Ah, uh, yes. Well, these are not tropical birds. These are subtropical birds. They come from a part of the world in, in the low uh, in the uh, southern hemisphere that actually has a very similar climate to the north um, east and the northern hemisphere, you know, the northern USA. So they're able to survive and thrive here in the Big Apple? They do very, very well here. Um, They're very well equipped for survival. They have a very wide-ranging diet. They communicate, of course, you know, we all think parrots talk. Well, they talk to each other, and they talk very purposefully to each other. And uh, they also have this talent for building these enormous and somewhat ungainly nests in infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, or they build them in church steeples or on top of stadium light poles. So the city uh, is is really a perfect place for them, or at least a part of the city that has a lot of trees. And of course, you know, there are more trees in Brooklyn and in Queens than there are uh, in in Manhattan per, per square meter. Where are the parrots most abundant? Well, I would say that um, Greenwood Cemetery is the main population. I'd say there are about 60 or 70 birds in that one spot. Uh, Midwood, uh, by Brooklyn College, there may be about 40. And then there are these smaller colonies. There's, there's a, a colony in Bay Ridge. 
There's one out in Canarsie. There's a fairly large colony in Bensonhurst. And um, there used to be a colony in Red Hook, but I think that colony is gone. So Greenwood Cemetery is the answer, but there are these smaller colonies um, you know, that, uh, that are also along South Brooklyn. And then there's a huge colony in New Jersey just across the river from about 125th Street. Uh, same kind of parrot, but again, no one knows how they got to New Jersey, and that's a whole different story. What inspired you, Steve, to start leading tours of these parrots in Brooklyn? I really liked going out and photographing them and, and trying to learn as much as I could about them. But bird watching is a very, you know, it can be a very solitary sort of a hobby. And I think at a certain point, I said, you know, this is interesting, but it'd be fun to share it with with other people and, and bring them along. I, I decided at that point, you know, I wanted to make these these free free tours. I didn't want to make this a business. It would just be more headaches. So I just um, decided to you know, put up a website, invite people, and, and you know, you're always welcome to come out. We do the, do the um, safaris or tours the usually the first Saturday of, of every month. And because the birds don't migrate, they're always here. So um, you can come out and see them in February or in August, and you know, they're doing different things, but they're still the same birds uh, doing that parrot thing. All right, Steve, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, George. Steve Baldwin runs a website called brooklynparrots.com. You can check it out to see when he's holding his next wild parrot safari. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can listen to past editions of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We also invite you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter or listen on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.